1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inders, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Maxwell Foxman, one of the editors of mainstreaming and game journalism. The publisher is MIT Press. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a 5 stars review on Apple Podcasts or the audio platform of your very choice. You're also more than welcome to leave feedback or questions on Spotify too. Please feel also free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. <laughs> and now back to the show. Mainstreaming and game journalism addresses both the history and current practice of game journalism along with the roles writers and industry play in conveying that the medium is a mainstream form of entertainment. Through interviews and reporters, Maxwell Foxman and David B. Nieborg retrace how the game industry and journalists started a subcultural spiral in the 1980s that continues to this very day. And speaking of today, I'm sure we can learn so much more about this topic, Maxwell, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to chat about the book on behalf of myself and my co-author, David Nieborg.
1: Yes, great. Well, I wonder if you could begin our little chat by telling us a bit about yourself. And please don't hesitate and tell us what's your favorite game and the one you're playing right now.
0: Sure. Um, I'm an assistant professor of Media Studies and Game Studies at the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. I'm also directing our new Game Studies minor, which was approved to start in 2024, in the fall of 2024. Um, Most of my research looks at the intersection of games and play in non-game contexts, uh, looking at how games, for instance, interact with media professions like journalism, but also uh, looking at esports, gamification, and even games and innovations like virtual reality uh, and XR. uh, I also am one of the co-directors of the Esports and Games Research Lab at the University of Oregon, and I'm also the chair for game studies at the International Communication Association. Uh, In terms of my favorite game of all time and What I'm playing now, uh, one of my favorites, it's so hard to choose, um, that I loved as a kid and that I'm actually coming back to is the JRPG Star Ocean Second Mm -hmm. Story, which was recently re-released. And I'm really interested to see what it's like now that I'm playing it as an adult because I haven't looked at it in about, it must be 10 to 20 years. Um, and, I mean, I just to, to keep things real, probably the game that I'm playing most is Wordle. I have a couple hundred day streak going, so Ooh. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah.
1: Well, circling back um, to your uh, book then, maybe... Let's start. Uh, Can you provide insights into the historical trajectory of game journalism, particularly how the relationship between the game industry and journalists in the 80s influenced the current state of the industry? And of course, what key factors contributed to the subcultural spiral and how has it continued to shape game journalism today? Sure. So
0: I think one of the things that it's always important for us to remember as game study scholars is that game journalism is still how a lot of people are first exposed to games and how they're framed in the larger public eye. And in some ways, that is something that has a 40 to 50 year old history, if not longer. Um, And so, as you said, in the book, we talk about how starting in the 1980s, you have uh, the development of uh what we call the enthusiast press which was the press that uh was was promoted particularly by the industry itself uh examples of this are magazines like nintendo power um and that that press uh which was you know made by the industry uh literally printed by by game companies was meant to appeal to a very exclusive audience um, this was coming off of, at least in the context of North America, the video game crash of uh, the 1980s, and uh, and and as a consequence, uh, game studios were really appealing to a very exclusive audience, and that exclusive audience was young boys. Um, and 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 it's and we argue that it's really the establishment of this press that creates a subcultural spiral um, where. Uh, where uh, where it's seen as outside of really the mainstream media, or games are seen as outs, uh, seen as outside of mainstream culture. Um, so there, we, we argue in the book that there's this battle essentially between industry journalists and players about who are gamers, what are real games, and what is good gameplay. Um, in terms of factors that contributed to this spiral, uh, there are there are a couple that are really endemic. So uh, a big one is access. Game game companies obviously uh, keep tight uh, control over who and who gets access to their games. Who gets access to them early? Who can write reviews, previews, etc. Uh, that specific type of audience uh, that is catered to is another important uh, factor in terms of using language that would appeal to. Uh, at the time young boys and sort of evolves into young men. There's a focus uh, for understandable reasons by the industry on products, sales, and technology. So you have articles around things like console wars, which in some ways are a very exclusive thing to cover um, because consoles change, but how that affects content is maybe questionable and uh in terms of journalists there's a real reliance on what we call passionate experts to tell stories people that really love games and can play them well and so of course that excludes those who maybe are new to games or don't have the same sort of gaming capital to use the the term from uh mia Consalvo to to talk about games and so the result is that we often see games treated as something subcultural today um and it looks different based on outlet obviously you know the enthusiast press is still in existence today um and is obviously interested in subcultural stories in the kind of nuances of games that are important but maybe um don't uh, aren't easily understood by those who aren't really really avid players and then on the other side you have uh the institutional press you know your major national outlets like the new york times um, uh, which are interested in games but often frame them either as in in what uh Dimitri Williams calls as utopian or dystopian frames. Um we actually start off the book with a real example of this uh the uh a New Yorker uh article about the phenomenon in 2018 that was Fortnite and how uh in in the article's heading or subheading they compare it to Beatlemania, eating tide pods and the opioid epidemic, which is just this sort of perfect Combination of weird dystopian frames that that uh, that is 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 interesting to read, but obviously doesn't really reflect the experience of most players.
1: That's very. That's. I was just thinking, you tap in the dope dystopian. Uh, that's very. That's what I'm talking about. You know, this is really exciting. This gets my heart racing now. I'm in the right <laughs> mood. So, your yeah. book then outlines three overlapping factors for the mainstreaming of games Um, that is broader media coverage ludic literacy and cultural legitimacy Mm. could you elaborate on how these factors interact with each other and which do you believe has been the most challenging to achieve in the ongoing process of mainstreaming video games
0: sure and and in many ways i think this is really the crux of the book um because as David and I started to look into the literature of of mainstream media. We were asking this question as we were developing the book and starting uh starting research for it. What we found was there really isn't a lot of of literature about mainstream media per se. Often mainstream media is a term that is positioned against alternative forms of media. So we wanted to really lay some groundwork um, as you're saying about what how can games be or not be mainstream what is the process of mainstreaming um and so as you said we have these these three criteria that we came up with and and the first is uh is uh ubiquity which is to say that we say that games require broad and easy access and you can see this in other cultural art forms. Um, you can think about the relative ease, for instance, for accessing music or movies. Uh, this is something that, that uh, has a long history of people just having very, very easy access to. Um, our second criteria is literacy, um, where we basically argue that writers and readers need a shared understanding of the medium. And of course, in the case of games, this is ludic literacy. But just to use uh, other media as an example, again, um, if you take something like film, there's a basic understanding or a basic common language that many of us use almost without thinking about it, things like close-ups or pans. Um, and this is something that actually, if you look into the history of, of film criticism, that the press really played a key role in, in helping uh, you know cultivate that language that now everyone kind of takes for granted. It's, and the third is that games need legitimacy or a kind of cultural acceptance from both mainstream and enthusiast uh, presses. And 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 so to answer your question about you know the most challenging uh, to the mainstream process, you know, in some ways all three are challenging. I mean, to be fair, games are very very ubiquitous. Uh, if we're talking about digital games, I, I, everyone. That I know at least has a cell phone, and that phone probably has a game or two on it. Um, but games in general, and even that cell phone, if we want to, if we want to get into the nuance of it, are still pretty expensive. And um, certain games obviously require a lot of money to spend over time. You think about the relative high price point of a AAA game, or games as services where you're expected to put in, you know, uh, quite a bit of money over time. Uh, I'm a fairly avid Pokemon Go player, and I don't like to imagine how much money I've actually put into the game over the last six or seven years. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, but but the the other one, the the other two factors, I'd say, are even more challenging. Right. Uh, Lytic literacy is still not very common. If you go back to that New Yorker article that I mentioned um the, the, the author, Nick Palmgarten, he's a really, you know, he writes a really wonderful article, but he starts off the article with this question. He says, shall I explain the game? And what an odd question if you think about literacy. No one, uh, if you're writing a, a, a review or even a feature about music, will say, shall I explain music? Um, if you read a film review, you don't get the comment, shall I explain film? Mm. Um, but he does make that qualification shall i explain the game um and 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 you know part of this is that often that core audience that i mentioned earlier those you know uh young avid players often challenge the the common uh common knowledge or an attempt to common knowledge they can they can be pretty vitriolic if uh if if writers aren't really you know um uh, really sort of showing themselves to be the absolute best uh best players having really detailed knowledge of the game we talk a little bit about the uh apology uh, uh that uh dean takahashi had to make after a really uh a, a, a video him playing cuphead really really bad um again you wouldn't expect a music reviewer to play music really well or badly and then i think legitimacy is also complicated um we, we describe how enthusiast, enthusiast outlets are, you know, doing increasingly serious work. Um, so, you know, when I say enthusiast outlets doing serious work, there's excellent work that comes out very, fairly often from outlets like Polygon or Kotaku. But there just aren't that many outlets, right? There aren't that many enthusiast, enthusiast outlets or that many writers doing that type of work. And Main Street outlets really go up and down in terms of coverage you know, um, in terms of you know what you might think of as legitimate coverage. Uh, in the course of writing this book, I believe the Washington Post's launcher vertical actually rose and fell. In other words, it was launched to much fanfare. And then, um, uh, you know, the entire vertical was disbanded by the newspaper. And I think that's indicative of the challenges of legitimacy that we see yeah. if you have institutional outlets kind of Going in and going out in terms of how much investment they make into the subject matter. So, you know, for, for better or worse, I think all three of those components when it comes to mainstreaming really are consistently being challenged, even 50 or 60 years into the history of uh, digital games.
1: Hmm. Well, your book also discusses the, the the challenges actually faced by game journalists, including marginalization and the struggle for freelance opportunities. And this is also something that I'm very aware of coming from a, a, a German perspective. Uh, how have these challenges impacted the professional landscape for, for game journalists? And have there been notable shifts or improvements in recent years?
0: Uh, absolutely. Um, so... There have been some notable shifts, but uh, in terms of these challenges, we do we do enter uh, identify three um, that that we think not only affect journalists, but but in in tandem with that also affect their ability to mainstream games. Um, In other words, their ability to bring games into uh, into public view as a mainstream medium. And so the, the three that we identify are um, precarity or financial insecurity of writers, specialization. Um, again, the writers are expected to, to specialize or be expert in games, um, uh, and that challenges literacy, and uh, a lack of sincerity, particularly by the institutional press. Um, in terms of shifts that have helped, um, in some ways there there is again more coverage of uh, of games perhaps than ever before um and this is something we only touch on very briefly in the book but um particularly via video um there there is now really just a lot of people speaking about writing about and showing games so in some ways that's that's a real opportunity and and one that i think um both David and I are exploring in the future, but our our book does uh, focus on on the print, you know, the print press. And in some ways, I, I just continue to be surprised by how things remain uh, the same. Hmm. Uh, for instance, you know that that first feature and one that that you just mentioned, uh, the the struggle of freelance opportunities. And, and the precarity of games journalists. I actually did a a, a report for the tau Center for Digital Journalism about how journalists can write about and use virtual worlds uh, ranging from uh, uh, massive multiplayer online games to virtual reality in their, in their writing. And one of the things I found uh, was I was doing interviews for uh, right, right 2020, 2021. And I found that the same issues of job precarity that i that david and i identified in the book where we're doing interviews mostly through 2018 um just persisted two to three years later and i and i see posts about this every day that that um that that writing about games is a precarious job and often requires people to uh work on by constantly pitching the next story um which can have especially in the north american context issues in terms of Healthcare, job security, um, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, to put it simply, we interviewed people who had to stop writing about games because they wanted to have a family, and this just wasn't providing them with full-time income. Um, and I think, you know, the one thing that might be changing in terms of uh, 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 of, the, uh, of uh, the shifts in recent years that that is perhaps most hopeful is how games themselves are being made and marketed i mean what's interesting is the service model that we're increasingly seeing in games and you could think of something like esports or a game like league of legends where you know it's ostensibly the same game as a platform for over a decade actually allows for more consistent reporting um it allows for reporting on uh the minutiae of a game it allows for the reporting of um uh, one game consistently and to report about it from all sides in a way that perhaps is more difficult if you're writing a review of a 200-hour game and you're going to write a 500 to 1,000-word review and you have to spend all the time playing that game, often for free. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one thing that I think is really positive. Um, I think another thing that has shifted in recent years that is uh worth highlighting is is the rise of podcasts um mm-hmm. which is is an interesting an interesting shift and is one that is industry-wide and when I say industry-wide I mean um within the journalism industry in general there's been this very interesting rise and fall and rise of podcasts and independent podcasts but you can see that there's there's places where that that ecosystem is really um st- uh, there there are some very hopeful examples I should say from it. Um, you could think of the 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 start of remap in the the wake of uh uh vice's waypoint radio uh collapsing, and so I mean there there are some really good stories um and or or hopeful stories coming out about how games can be covered in the years of years ahead. Um. And one other thing I should just note, which I think is is important, is the book does cover um, North America with a real focus on um, the United States and, and Canada primarily. And so one of the other things that David and I have found, and um, uh, David is speaking uh, from his experience uh, as a Dutch game journalist for many years, is that while some countries cover games in the manner that we're describing – Others don't. Um, we've had really interesting conversation with colleagues around certain parts of Europe um, and uh, uh, about how coverage of games looks different from country to country. And um, that doesn't include, obviously, uh, other parts of the world where where we also see that the coverage of games just looks different and is culturally informed by how the industry is perceived there, as well as how the press is perceived.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder additionally, how does the ambivalence within the profession influence the broader perception of video games in the media and society? I mean, you already told us that um, <clears throat> it's one of the first um, touch points, so to speak, uh, between between customers, uh, clients and and the, the actual artifacts or cultural artifacts of of digital games. But I was wondering um, whether this has some broader yeah. Um, b- Broader implications.
0: Yeah, I I I think it does. the The ambivalence of game, game journalism is something that um, David and I have written about really for years. It was it was our first real project together, um, which was an article that we published for the Journal of Games Criticism. was about the deep ambivalence that game journalists feel about their own profession. and And some of our earliest conversations really stemmed around how uh, when I, the, the inspiration for my, my side of the project, as I said, David had the experience of being a game journalist, but I was interviewing game journalists and, um, they often wouldn't call themselves journalists. They were hesitant to do so. Um, mm. they might call themselves game writers, um, or game reviewers. And, and, and so this is something that, that also lies at the heart of our book. And, and, and it's something that comes from, uh, we argue the dependence on studios, uh, for access and also in some ways, the expectation by fans, um, for expertise. Uh, there's, there's few professions where, where you're both so dependent on an industry for how you're, how you're going to write about it. And the fans expect you to be just the very best version of what they are. And so, um, you know, this does make journalists deeply ambivalent about their job. And, you know, if you see that along with the the economic precarity that um, that exists within uh, game journalism itself without the kind of institutional investment from the press, uh, journalists often actually do move very porously between industry and freelancing. Um, Many of the people that I've interviewed over my uh, five to, well, I guess it's much longer now, seven seven to eight years of interviewing game journalists, um, many of them have gone into the industry or have gone back and forth between the industry. And and it, it makes sense. I mean, the skills that they have about communicating about games are valuable, both for readers who are reading good journalism and for the industry so they can communicate about what they're doing. Um, but I do think this this ambivalence which which sort of bears itself out right if 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 one day you're a journalist and the next day you're working uh in communications I mean this obviously impacts mainstreaming um because the boundaries between press fandom and journalism are maybe not as clear as um well I guess as as David and I uh hope ideally um and so it, it, it in particular, I think, makes that legitimacy category of mainstreaming difficult. If you look at sort of traditional hard news um, and how it exists within within the uh, the web pages of of mainstream sites, there are often really clear boundaries set in terms of what makes the journalism journalism, what makes uh, you know the other sections of the newspaper. Uh, you know, the opinion section, the opinion section, so on and so forth. Um, but I think that's something that really needs to be considered when we're talking about um, the long-term impact, because without actually drawing those clear lines consistently, um, it's, it's just very difficult, I think, for fans and for the public in general to, to know when they're reading journalism and and what that journalism is meant to convey. So, so we actually go as far as in the conclusion at, at the very end of the book we do try to recommend some uh solutions some some ways that uh all of us in terms of consuming writing uh and, and writing about games can 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 mainstream uh games even further and one of the solutions that we we suggest is that, game writers really need to lean into their journalistic orientation if they have that ambivalence about what they are doing they they need to work hard to try not to be ambivalent to call themselves journalists to call their work journalism Mm -hmm. and and i think that in some ways that will be a benefit to uh not just uh not just them in the sense that uh you know obviously that will demarcate their their occupation but it'll be really a benefit to the public in fact it's probably more beneficial to the public because that sort of orientation allows the the drawing of clear boundaries as to uh what what these writers are doing
1: yeah i was just uh only it was just only yesterday that i thought of um for an article about um video game essays and yeah it's becoming more and more clear to me that these video game essays as a format they they represent a huge chance because somehow there are um, a connection between between hobbyist fan culture and classical game journalism and essayistic game journalism and also questions that pop up in game studies uh not that uh rarely so this may be something i will look into in the future but this is not about me. We have some time left. So please tell us, um, tell our listeners, um, what are you uh, working on right now?
0: Sure. Well, um, I'm I'm working on all sorts of things, um, especially, uh, I, like I said, I study a sort of wide variety of subjects, so I, I certainly am doing some work with uh, the uh, esports in, uh, on esports, collegiate esports. I do a fair amount of work looking at game engines like Unity, which of course, from a game journalism point of view, has had some interesting ups and downs over the uh, last few months and uh, continue to do some work on immersive media um, and and VR. But um, in terms of game journalism specifically, I have a few projects that I'm working on. Um, the first, I've been working for a few years now uh, with a colleague at uh, the University of Houston Clear Lake, Brandon Harris, about Twitch, um, and specifically about Twitch's journalistic potential. Um, mm-hmm. So we've been looking at uh, not only different types of journalism that are appearing on on that platform, which is some way in some ways uh, harkens back to some very classic types of broadcast. You can think of C-SPAN in the United States, but in other ways is obviously very very different. Um, and, and we see that really in the rise of the political commentator class that's happening on the platform. You have very interesting uh, uh, broadcasters on both uh, the far right and the far left, um, as well as, as not so far right and not so far left, um, that are, are broadcasting on that platform and using it uh, as a political commentary tool, as well as a tool for political action. So uh, Brandon has uh, uh, Brandon uh, was the first author of an article we published in social media and society about, um, Hassan Piker and how he has used Twitch as a political platform. Mm. Um, and we have some other, uh, articles under review and, uh, in terms of game journalism and the work that I'm doing with David, we are in the process of putting together our next project. Um, uh, on this, to so kind of continue the work uh, that that we started here, and 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 that is most likely going to take the form of a special issue uh, that we're putting together. So, especially if there are listeners that are interested in mm-hmm. potentially contributing on this subject matter, uh, and and are in the academic world, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, you can find all my information at the University mm-hmm. of Oregon uh, nice. webpage. So.
1: Consider me, I interested. Are... Consider me interested.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I will I will <laughs> definitely remain in touch about that.
1: <laughs> so um, thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Maxwell, take care and goodbye. So dear listeners, I hope you like this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust on Facebook and Instagram and under at Game Studies on Blue Sky. And again, please share this episode where you see fit. And always keep playful.